This is episode 23 of the Kindred Mom Podcast. I am your host, Emily Sue Allen. Hey everyone, I'm so grateful you've joined me today. Both of my guests today are courageous mamas who have been through extremely difficult things with their little ones. My first guest is Sarah Damasca, and she lost her daughter Annie to a brain tumor. Today she shares a bit about that journey and their lives after Annie passed away. Later in the show, my friend Pam Schrager shares an essay she contributed to the Kindred Mom blog in honor of Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. I'm eager to share both of these courageous mamas with you. Big and Little Coloring Devotional is a book that provides a creative outlet through coloring to diffuse stress while engaging intentionally with your children. Within just five minutes of use, you will discover why it is so much more than a coloring book. It incorporates physical, spiritual, and emotional refreshment for you and your child by providing authentic, faith-filled devotionals combined with therapeutic doodling. My favorite part? It was created by two mamas, Rachel Swanson and Jackie Coral. They were overwhelmed by the demands of parenting and created this book to nurture their spirits and connect with their children. It releases October 1st, and you can order your own copy at BigAndLittleColoringDevotional.com or wherever books are sold. Today I have with me Sarah Damasca, and I am so excited to talk with her. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation and would love for you to begin by just telling us a little bit about you and your family and then kind of expanding um, kind of on an overview of your story. Awesome. Yes. So um, my name is Sarah. I've been married to my husband, Peter, for 17 years, which seems like a really long time at this point, Um, but it's been good. Uh, we live in the thumb of Michigan. I don't know if you know about um, geography in Michigan, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm a transplant to Michigan. So what you do is you hold up your left hand and mm-hmm. you point to where you're from. So we are in the thumb of Michigan in a little town. My husband is a pastor here. And uh, we've lived here actually for 13 years. It's where we've had all of our kids. Sometimes it's funny for me to answer how many kids I have. And because I know we're going to get into it, um, uh, I'll say for this interview, I've given birth to four children, but mm-hmm. we are raising three. So we, mm-hmm. um, we lost a daughter. So, but I'll start with William. He's our only son. Uh, he's 13. Um, Kate is 10, almost 11. And Eliza is six, almost seven. So um, in that gap between Kate and Eliza was a little girl, Annie, and she... Um, lived for just six months. She, um, would be eight right now. And actually this is crazy timing for us because this Friday will mark eight years since she's been gone. And that was a sudden thing for us at about five months old. She, um, went from being a healthy, normally developing child to all of a sudden exhibiting some symptoms that we just didn't know what was going on. And, we spent a month in and out of hospitals and doctors and trying to figure out what was going on. And, um, finally we, um, we went to a hospital, 
a university hospital near us and mm-hmm. uh, within minutes they discovered a brain tumor in her that was um, the size of mm-hmm. a man's fist. And so um, there weren't a lot of options for us at that point. Um, it was so developed and it was really a complicated tumor. And so we had to make a difficult decision to, um, to just let her die. And so that is what we did. We went into the hospital with her on a Saturday and she passed away in our arms on a Tuesday night. So it was a really quick, um, so it was just like a four day window there. Yes. Yes. We'd known she was sick, but we didn't know how extreme it was. So William and Kate were, um, three and five at the time. So they were just, they were very tiny. Eliza hadn't been born yet. So, so yeah, so that's our family. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about what your family has experienced. Um, I know from what you have shared about your story with me that, um, there's a real tension in life about the sorrow that you have experienced and continue to feel, I'm sure. And also a sense of hope. And, um, I would love for you to talk about that part of your journey as well, because I listen to stories like this and I'm just gripped with, I can't believe you experienced that. And yet I know that there is a lot about what you write and share in your own online spaces about the hope and purpose you have found in the midst of that journey. Yeah, actually, there was a verse that I found pretty soon after Annie died. It's it's in the middle of um, Psalms 84. And it says, when they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs where pools of blessing collect after the rain. Mm. And that verse became just a mantra to me that there is a valley of weeping, but it can become a place of refreshing springs. It can be Mm. a blessing. And and we've seen it happen over and over in our lives. And it's been this amazing journey of holding on to hope and sorrow at the same time. Wow, I just find that really inspiring and having not been through that kind of grief journey myself, I mean, I've experienced grief in other ways, but when I think about anything happening to one of my children, that's just one of those deep fears uh, of mine. And I'm just interested to know how you have, like what your relationship with fear has been both through that journey as it was happening and since that time, is that something that you have compartmentalized or... I just am curious how you have dealt with that. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first thing people say to me. Um, I can't imagine if that happened. Um, I couldn't do it mm-hmm. if I were you. And I have just found that God's grace in our lives, it comes however we need it. Um, yeah. Just for us in just what we're doing, I think. And we've seen it happen over and over where someone has gone through something horrific and they do amazing things with it. I just think there's mm-hmm. something in human nature that allows us to rise above our sorrow and redeem mm-hmm. redeem what's happened and turn it into something good. And I think that's such an amazing part of of God's redemption for us and the way we can live our lives. Yeah, I definitely have experienced in other ways in my life how the fear of what might happen is sometimes worse than mm-hmm. what actually happens. And right. not that I can think of anything worse than losing a child. That to me is top of the list of terrible things. But I do think that those of us who are not in that place of crisis or grief, mm-hmm. that 
we still have this limiting factor that makes it difficult to really enjoy these years with my little ones because I'm so worried or so afraid or trying so hard to be in control of everything that could possibly go wrong. And it's kind of unrealistic to think that we can shield ourselves or our children from Mm -hmm. difficult things. I mean, it's exhausting too, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) I've really been thinking about how when fear is something that overtakes me or I really indulge these negative thoughts about what could happen that isn't happening, but could happen, that it's not just a benign thing that is just part of my life. It's actually robbing me of really the fullness and goodness and Mm -hmm. taking in the beauty of the moments that I do have right now. And so as I have begun to see that more in my life and see that pattern, I just feel like it's no longer a choice to just live with it. Like I have to figure out a way Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the things that I'm worried about, to name the things Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of and to work through them in a more proactive way. So they're not taking away from the the life that I have with my family in this current season that we're in. Right. And there is a lot of fear. I remember when I, I realized that just because I had lost a child didn't mean I was safe from any kind of grief for the rest of my life. It's not right. like there we fill the quota of grief and yeah. then we're good for the rest of our lives. Um, I remember reading um, Bob Goff talks in his book, Love Does, about how he, when he was a lawyer, he instructed his clients to testify with their palms up um, instead of clenching their fists, because if they clench their fists, it felt defensive and skeptical, but um, their whole demeanor changed when they would answer questions with their palms open and up. And so mm-hmm. I've thought about that a lot because when we walk through these, you know, grief or tragedy, any kind of heartache, I think that we tend to clench our fists because we want to hold on to what we have left. Mm-hmm. And I remember at a certain point, I felt like I lived my life with my, with my uh, fists clenched because I was afraid that if I let go, some of my memories would fade and some of that pain would disappear. Um, and it really, it, it took a lot of work to just unclench my fists and, start fighting for hope and know that God was going to bring a purpose to my pain and, and a redemption. And, and it's, and it's been good. Life is a lot easier when I trust Jesus and live with my palms up. So there might be some mamas, or hopefully there are many, many mamas who are listening that haven't lost a child, Yeah, but they know someone else who has or is walking through a really difficult journey, sure. uh, whether it's cancer or some other medical condition. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious if there are some ways that you have identified that people like me who are in a season of not in that yeah. really yeah. challenging space, how can we support other moms who are either in grief or in a crisis situation? Well, um, one of the things, actually, my husband and I were talking about this um, things, because we talk a lot about how can you walk alongside someone and what are good things to say? And as Peter and I were talking, he said, it's so important to not forget the men who are grieving or who are also Mm. walking. Um, I remember, um, one Sunday 
I don't know if I stayed home with one of the kids. It was pretty soon after Annie had died, but I stayed home from church and he came home and he started listing off all the people who had asked how I was doing or uh, saying that they missed me. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he said, nobody asked how I was doing. And I think we as women often surround each other and we do a really good job caring for one another, but I don't think men do that quite as well. And so that was a really lonely time for him. And so not that I would tell other moms to reach out to other people's husbands, but just to include men on grieving too, because men grieve just as deeply and they walk through these things um, with just as much difficulty as women do. So that's one thing I would say. Um, Another thing that always really means a lot to me is when people bring up Annie by name, because I say my other kids' names over and over and over throughout the day. And I don't even think about it, but I, but I don't do that with Annie's name. Her name just doesn't come up. And so when someone takes the time to mention her name or to remember her, it always means so much to me. It's really interesting because I think so many times we don't want to, at least I have felt this way that I don't want to trigger something or make something a negative experience for another mom. Yeah. And also I've had a lot of people tell me that, well, I didn't want you to think about it. If you weren't thinking about it, I didn't want to bring it up. And um, honestly, especially in those first few years of intense grief, um, there wasn't a lot of time that I wasn't thinking about it. And so um, it just, it always means a lot to me when someone cares enough to, because it takes some bravery. Um, Mm -hmm. So even if you think it will bring up hurt, I think it's, it's good. It's good to be brave and to bring up those things. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, so you had shared another story with me about the pregnancy that you had following this event. And I would be really interested to know about that story and what your journey was like, just kind of feeling all the pregnancy and new baby again stuff, um, having been through such a traumatic thing with Annie. Yeah. So we, um, we made a decision pretty quickly after Annie died. We just, both of us felt in our hearts that we needed to add to our family. And so just a few months later, I found myself pregnant again. And, um, we were really terrified for a lot of reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. terrified that people would think we were trying to replace her. Uh, we were just scared, uh, just to go through the process again. And so, Mm -hmm. um, we waited a long time to tell anybody and, I remember the day that we went in for, um, it was just, I don't know, just a routine heartbeat. So it was probably 10, 12 weeks along. We hadn't told our kids yet and not sure why, but for some reason we ended up having to bring William and Kate with us to the appointment. Mm -hmm. And my husband was kind of watching them and they knew when we walked into the doctor's office that we were at, they said, are we going to have a new baby? And we said, yeah, we are. And Anyway, time went by. He ended up taking the kids out because they were being crazy. And I went back on my own. And when my doctor put the little wand on my belly, um, there was this deafening silence. And I know that there are so many people that walk into those appointments full of hope and there's silence. And I just, I just didn't even know what to do. And my doctor is hugging me. She's telling me she's sorry. And, and my mind was just blank. And, um, Finally, she said to me, well, the ultrasound tech is in today. Let me see if she can squeeze you in. As soon as I got on, started the ultrasound, um, she found a healthy heartbeat. Eliza had just been tucked down low, but 
what happened in my heart was instead of being filled with this immediate joy, I was just left with this reality of not having control over what's going to happen. And so our story, sometimes I really hesitate to tell that story because the ending to that was a healthy baby girl that is now almost seven. And I know that for some people, that's not their ending, that there's another tragedy and another tragedy. But I know that tragedy doesn't have to be the ending to our stories, that when we open our hearts up to what Christ can do through our sorrow, we find redemption and beauty. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's not full of tears and processing yeah. and horrible things, but, um, but that God can really, really use our circumstances. So I'm curious from the experience that you've had, what grief has done in your family in the years since her passing? Um, one of the things that we really determined early on is that we were going to start to serve out of our sadness. And um, mm -hmm. part of that thinking was I read a book by a man named Viktor Frankl, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychologist, mm -hmm. but um, the twist on it is that he was also a prisoner of Auschwitz and survived that. And so he wrote out of his experiences and he believed that life never quit having meaning, even in suffering and mm -hmm. death. And so uh, what he said was, even in the darkest times, we have the power to choose how to react to our own sufferings, which I just mm -hmm. think is such a weighty statement in light of the fact that he was a prisoner. So we decided to try that. So we started to find ways to serve out of our sadness. And what we found was that it took the sting out of what we had experienced and also it opened our eyes to see a much bigger world of suffering that we weren't the only ones. I think sometimes when you go through death or, um, or some terrible thing, what happens is you start to close in on yourself. You get really, um, isolated in your grief and you can shut everything else out, but serving makes you see a, a bigger world of people who are suffering. So we just try to do whatever we can. And specifically, um, like this Friday, when we celebrate eight years that Annie has been with Jesus, um, we'll go back to the town that we left her at the university town where she was, where she died. And we do fun things as a family, but we've also stumbled on this great thing that we'll put five and $10 bills in envelopes and we'll write something like, have a great day on the outside and we'll go to places where we know students are walking or people are walking and we'll slip the envelopes like under a rock or right in the middle of the sidewalk. And then we'll go back into our car and we'll watch for people to pick them up. It sounds kind of creepy, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's been <laughs> so fun for our family that we'll watch people pick up these envelopes and open them and see this little gift and they get so excited and we get excited mm -hmm. and um, or we'll, we'll pay, we go to a little cupcake shop and we always get cupcakes to celebrate and we'll pay for the person behind us, their cupcake. And yeah. those are just little things that we've done along the way. And we do much bigger things. And I mean, serving is just part of our life, but we are intentional about it on, on, especially on her yeah. birthday and on the day that she died. Well, I just so appreciate you sharing that. I'm really inspired and just love how intentional you are about 
I know that you are still grieving that she's not with you, um, but that you have found some positive, lovely ways to bond as a family, even while you're celebrating that anniversary. And thank you so much for sharing your story, Sarah. Yeah. You are a strong, resilient mama, and it's really amazing to hear the wisdom that has come out of your experience. It's good. It's been such an amazing journey for me. And I would never, in a million years, I would still want her to be with us. And I'll never get over her. I'll never stop missing her and wishing that, you know, I'll never stop looking at pictures of our family and wonder where she would be standing or what she would look like. Mm -hmm. But I have realized that I can celebrate the life I have and the life that is different now because she was here and now she was gone. She's changed me forever. So it's good. Mm -hmm. It's good. Sarah referenced an idea from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And after hearing her talk about it, I went looking for some direct quotes. Here are two that stood out to me. Quote, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And the second quote reads, Between stimulus and response there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. What Sarah and her family have experienced is beyond difficult. I can't even for a moment imagine walking that same road of losing a child. And yet there is something powerful about how Sarah describes her moving forward, living with her palms open, and not living defensively or fearfully about the future, even though she has experienced gut-wrenching grief in the past. I appreciate what she said about acknowledging that men also need support in their grief journeys. And I hope that those who come around a family in a difficult time will not overlook the dads and husbands who are so often being strong for their families. As communities come together to support those who are going through difficult things, I pray there would be room for both sorrow and hope. I pray that as we journey with people who are feeling sorrow, anger, disappointment, or any other negative emotions that we wouldn't be so quick to try and smooth it out and make it more comfortable. We can hold space for what is hard and still breathe hope and courage in the moments it is needed. To close out this show, I wanted to acknowledge and honor Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, which is September, for anyone who might be catching this episode in the future. I personally know not just online connections, but personally know more than 10 families who have encountered pediatric cancer with one of their children, and raising awareness for pediatric cancer has become something that is very important to me. I'm going to leave you with an essay reading by my friend Pam Schrager about her experience walking through cancer with her son. She has a few things to say about her own story and also has some information and statistics about cancer research funding that I find gripping, grieving, and unacceptable. Here to share her essay, titled Acceptance, is Pam Schrager. On March 30th, 2012, Kaden, my firstborn, was diagnosed with cancer at three years old. Pediatric oncologists explained that he had an aggressive form of childhood cancer, stage four high-risk neuroblastoma, with a five-year survival rate of less than 50%. Neuroblasts are embryonic cells that develop into nerves, and in my baby boy, it may have been a single cell that didn't develop properly and instead became cancerous. Risk factors and causes of neuroblastoma are unknown. In Caden, the tumor started in his adrenal gland, 
and spread throughout his entire skeleton, and one tumor pushed on his brain. For the first few weeks after diagnosis, I silently begged to wake up from the nightmare. Endless questions of why and how swirled in my mind and prayers, and always ended with me thinking that Caden, my treasured little boy that I had fed high-quality foods, sheltered from violent TV, gave plenty of time to sleep, protected from hazardous things, and spent a lot of time playing outdoors, could not possibly have cancer. I struggled to accept our new reality. I walked by pictures hanging on the wall of Caden before he got sick. The photo taken of him swinging in the park, barefoot and carefree, just after his second birthday, with nothing but pure blue sky in the background, would always catch me. No way. Look at that happy, healthy child. Was cancer growing in his body then? I just can't believe this has happened to him. What would our lives be like if cancer never entered it? Most of the time now, I no longer think these thoughts. It doesn't seem possible to wake up from this nightmare anymore. I've given up on wondering why or how. I know I'll never know the answers to either of those questions this side of heaven. I accept that my firstborn was full of cancer at the tender age of three. However, I do not accept that childhood cancer treatment feels harsh, barbaric, and cruel. Using chemotherapies and radiation created for adult cancers generations ago. I will not accept that some childhood cancers have very grim prognoses. I refuse to accept that children are getting far less than adults in terms of cancer research funding, with only 4% of the National Cancer Institute's budget and 1% of the American Cancer Society's, and very few pharmaceutical companies developing drugs for pediatric cancers. All of these things are completely unacceptable. Cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in children in the United States of America. I will never be okay with what Caden has gone through. What I have accepted is that this is a part of his life, our lives. I never want it to define who he is, and I'm tired of it consuming my every thought. I accept what we have been handed, but I don't like it. Acceptance feels much better than denial. During the first few months following his diagnosis, I focused on getting through the ridiculously long and intense treatment, hearing the words that my son no longer had cancer and continuing on with our lives. Marked by the experience, but victorious, grateful, driven, and optimistic. I'm sure it wouldn't have been that simple, even if Caden had sailed through treatment and had a terrific response, but that's not how it went. Caden had insane amounts of treatment. Children can tolerate much higher levels of therapy than adults can. Yet despite these treatments, his disease was reluctant to leave. Even as recently as one month ago, neuroblastoma cells can still be found in Caden's bone marrow. I must accept and coexist with the anxiety this creates. I have to swallow this figurative pill I never wanted to take, just as my son has physically had to do so 
very many times. Yet, not a day goes by that I don't think about hope. When I was a kid, childhood leukemia was basically a death sentence. Today, that is no longer the case. Each day, new discoveries are being made. Unfortunately, even today, some pediatric cancers are terminal upon diagnosis. And not every kid diagnosed with leukemia is cured either. Way too far from it. But somewhere along the line, incremental advances have been made. Gradually, more kids are surviving. It hasn't been a light bulb instantaneous discovery. I have hope for Caden that maybe the tide is shifting and he can be swept up as one of the lucky ones. But I have to accept the reality of his prognosis in one hand and the hope that lies in the other. I accept I have very little power to change the outcome. I must walk forward with faith in miracles. In some ways, the fact that he is here with us now is one. Ten years ago, that might not have been the case. I accept that our future is full of uncertainty. I accept that when someone talks about graduations, Christmas, birthdays, weddings, I will always wonder if he will be there. I accept that his life is not and will not be easy. He faces challenges other kids don't have to, but he is remarkable. He doesn't have to stand out like an Olympian or Nobel Prize winner to be exceptional. I accept that I will probably never be comfortable with the word survivor. I accept that a part of his childhood was stolen away, but he has had infinite love and attention poured over him. I accept the lessons I have learned along the way. I accept our lives as they are, good and bad highs and lows, and everything in between.